The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Uh, we're, we're starting our new, uh, I guess we started a new series in Exodus last week. Dale kind of set the, the stage for us and kind of given us the context of uh, why Exodus matters, what has happened up till now, what's all kind of took a 30,000 foot view of uh, Genesis and kind of got us up to date with where we are now. And we're calling the series Exodus, Our Journey, because you know, like life is really, life is really a journey, right? It's really kind of a journey of journeys, if you think about it. Uh, we're always doing something. We're always going somewhere, right? I mean, you're, you're sitting here this morning and you're listening to me, kind of, and you're thinking about, uh, or at some point you'll be thinking about, or already have, and you'll think about it again, where are you going after this? Uh, what's for lunch? Uh, are we going to get home by one so we can see kickoff? Uh, you know, don't, I, hope, I hope Randy remembers today is the NFL, uh, the kickoff of the NFL season, which I do. Um, what, what's, uh, what's going on? Where am, I, where am I going in life? Where are, you, where are you going in your career? What are you working towards? Where are you working towards where you live, how you live, what you're doing, family, a mate? Uh, what's that going to look like? Where are you going? Where, where's, where are you going after this? Life is a, a journey, but it's really a series of journeys. So we never really fully arrived, do we? We get somewhere and we cross the line and then it's the next goal. I, mean, I remember, you remember how long school felt? Like when I say school, like kindergarten to 12th grade, remember how long that felt? And then you like, you cross the line, you're a senior and you finally graduate and then it's just like the next thing. And then you go to college or you start a career and then it's, you know, then it's getting married. Then you get married and this next thing is like, it's, it's just a one journey after another. We're, we're longing for the next thing. We're, we're trying to cross the line. When we cross the line, it's just the, the next thing that we're going into next. But really, if you think about it, all of our kind of smaller journeys that we're going on is really there's an arc that's leading us in one general direction. And some of us have, like, we have that very clearly in mind. We know what that arc should look like, where we want it to end, where we want this journey to, you know, being a mate, and then family, and then a house. And then we kind of picture where we wanted to end, but there's a general arc that's taking us somewhere in life. And I think sometimes there's a question that we don't really ask about life. And that is, where are we coming from and where are we headed? Where are we coming from and where are we headed? Or perhaps maybe a scarier question is, where am I coming from and where am I headed? I don't think sometimes we want to ask those questions because we're kind of afraid of the answer. If I continue in my marriage the way it is now, where is this going to end? If I continue living my life the way I am now, where is this going to head? Where is this going to take me at the end? Maybe even the scarier question is, why? Why am I going in this particular direction? Why am I going to end up there if I'm doing? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing that are taking me in this direction, whether I want to or not? There's scary questions that we don't like to ask each ourselves, and we don't really like to ask each other either. And I think some of it is, and I've touched on this before on Sunday mornings, I think some of this is a, a symptom of our society. We are so busy 
We are so fast-paced. We're full of one journey from one place to the next to the next that we don't really want to stop and ask the question, where am I coming from and where am I headed? It's hard because asking that question requires a certain amount of quietness of soul. We have to stop long enough to ask the question. And in our current wired and unwired society, we really don't have, you can really go through life, you can go through days and weeks and months and years at a time without ever having your soul quiet enough that you hear yourself ask the question, where am I coming from and where am I headed? It also requires a certain amount of self-awareness. That I'm sort of aware of who I am and why I'm here and what's going on. What are the thoughts that are going through my head? Have you ever thought about all the thoughts that you think in daily life that you're not even, like you think them, but you're not really aware of them? Thoughts that like, if, if there was like a, a screen on each side of your head and it put up each thought that's running through your head and the people around you could read it. Like, they would be astounded at the crazy, stupid, unhealthy things that you keep thinking about all day long that I keep thinking about all day long. But we're not really aware of them. We don't stop and think about it. We also don't often ask those questions because it requires a certain amount of perspective. I have to be thinking about something other than just myself. Our society kind of continually tells us, when you go home and you watch football today, if you're going to watch football today, God bless your soul, but watch the commercials that come on. Just watch them. Almost every commercial is going to be saying, you deserve this. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to drive this kind of car. You deserve to be treated like a king, so therefore you should buy this or go here or stay here and do this. And and. And what happens is we lose perspective because we begin to think that life kind of revolves around me and that my life should be about making me happy and therefore everybody around me, their life should be about making me happy as well. It's also lastly hard to ask these questions because it requires some amount of courage. Because in those quietness, those moments of quiet, when I really ask myself, where am I going What's my trajectory in life? And where am I coming from? And why am I heading in this direction? It requires some courage because I have to really face who I am and what makes me me. And that can be hard, right? Because we all have a, like a, we all have a picture of ourselves that's a little bit rosier than we actually are. And that moment of self-awareness, that moment of perspective, that moment of courage it takes to face like, hey, this is, I'm really not quite as cool or quite as together or quite as awesome as I really think I am. If we ask ourselves those questions, it can be scary. There was a guy, uh, he took his own life uh, a few years back, but his name was David Foster Wallace. Anybody ever heard of him? You're smarter than me if you have. If anybody ever read any of his books, you don't have to raise your hand because you're going to feel really smart about yourself. But he was a, he was a, really, he was a very famous writer. Uh, he wrote, uh, I think, maybe three novels among a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, one, I think it was his first novel, uh, is considered by a lot of scholars and a lot of experts to be one of the 
best books written in the past 25 to 50 years. I've never read it. He wrote another book, I think it was his second or third book, and it was nominated for, um, for a Pulitzer Prize in fiction. I mean, he was smart dude, well-educated, together he was a professor, uh, and he gave a commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. And it's, I mean, this guy's not a believer, not a Christian, totally, I think he's an atheist, but an incredibly insightful speech where he kind of talks about some of these questions that we're talking about. I don't like to share long quotes with you guys because I know you normally kind of just kind of tune me out if we're going through a long quote, but I think this one, I'm not doing the whole speech, but I think this, this section is worth me repeating to you. It's going to be on the screen back behind me so you guys can follow along and try not to zone out. David Foster Wallace. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, I think he's talking about Jesus Christ there, or apparently he's on really close terms with him and call him by his initials, or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, so this is talking about your trajectory in life. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that it's not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world would not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious you'll not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. And he says something like displayal which I didn't know was a word, but he's really smart, so maybe it is. The really, important, the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about, what other, peop- about other people and a sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. 
That's being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, and here's the payoff. The constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. David Foster Wallace understood some things that I think that we all innately understand to some extent. First of all, that we are all worshipers. The reason you and I are heading in a particular direction and the the why is because we worship something. One of those things that he listed are something else that we see a value and we love it and we serve it and we build our lives around it. We build our identity around it. And when that rises, our identity and value rises. When that falls, our identity falls with it and our value falls with it as well. We're all worshipers. That's one thing you understood. The second thing you understood is that we all become like what we worship. If you worship money and power, or power if you worship uh, sexual allure, you'll become more and more like what you worship. But the problem is that none of those things can support the weight that we put on it. They all fall under the weight that we try to put on it. The third thing that he understood is that we need Freedom. Listen to what he said. He's talking about freedom in this quote. He says, um, Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom of all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, one of my favorite quotes from that section. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but there are different kinds of freedom. He understood that we need to be freed from the things that, that tend to drive who we are and where we're going in life, to drive the trajectory of our overall journey and our tiny little journeys, the reason that we make the decisions that we do that are leading us in a particular direction. We need to be freed from that. But there's something that David Foster Wallace couldn't quite understand because he wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is that not only do we need freedom, but that we have to be freed. We have to be saved. And that's what the book of Exodus is about. It's about our journey of salvation. We need to be Freed. Because by definition, worship is something that we ascribe value to, and you can't just stop worshiping something. That worship has to be replaced by something greater. And if we're going to worship something that's going to withhold us, that's going to keep us, that's going to keep us on a trajectory of something that's not going to cave in on itself, it by definition has to be something greater than us. But if you don't believe in God, then there's nothing greater than us to worship. And so we are failed to only to continually be in a loop of failure, to worship things that can't withhold our worship and it will constantly be falling underneath us. That's why some of you, some of us have, we've chased relationships thinking that being in the right relationship, finding love is going to make us valuable, it's going to fill us up and then every relationship seems to fall down and you find another one and you find another one trying to find the right one that will answer all your questions and it continually falls underneath itself. Some of you are chasing the, the, uh, the idol of, of your intellect. Even the smarter and smarter you get, the more educated you get that, that you'll like you'll, you'll find more and more value, but the problem is that every single achievement that you achieve doesn't quite seem to stroke you the way the first one did. It's like Krispy Kreme donuts. The first one is amazing. 
The second one is really good. The third one, not quite as good. And the fourth one, let's just be honest. The fourth one, because they when they're hot and fresh now, they go down easy and smooth. The fourth one, you're starting to feel a little guilty. The fifth one, you don't even know, like, why, why, am, I do, why am I still doing this? The, the, the second and the third Krispy Kreme donut is never as good as the first. It's the law of diminishing returns. And that's the way whatever idols that you worship, whatever thing that you place your identity and value in, it never strokes you like the first one did. Every pun intended. It never returns quite as much pleasure as the first time. The second kiss is never as good as the first. It can never satisfy your deepest longings of your soul because it wasn't created to. Our worship has to be replaced with something that's greater than us. And because of that, we can't just find freedom. We must be freed. We must have something revealed to us that's greater and more beautiful and more powerful than anything else. That's why the book of Exodus is so important. It's the clearest picture in scripture of what the journey to salvation looks like. So the Bible doesn't work like there's, a, like there's a, a, a book of definitions back in the back and you look back and you find like sin or salvation and it tells you exactly what it means. You have to kind of like see it in context, the picture of it. And the picture of Exodus is the picture of salvation. See, the book of Exodus starts with the children of Israel in slavery, but it ends with them in worship. There's a big section in the book of Exodus that uh, we're going to kind of take a, later on when we get there, we're going to take kind of a 30,000 foot view of, but it's full of like laws and regulations of, of like God laying out for them, this is exactly how you're going to build the tabernacle and this is how you should build the lampstand, this is how you build, should build the altar and this is how you should fasten everything, this is how you should create everything, this is how you should pack it all back up and unpack and this is the way you should carry is all kinds of minuscule details and the reason it's full of all those details is because Exodus is really a book about salvation from empty idols, from empty worship to finding our worship in the one and only true God. In this section that we read this morning, Exodus 1, um, 8 through 14, there's a really interesting word. You can look at it in verse, uh, verse 14. Uh, you, we don't really get it in the, uh, in the English translation, uh, but it really stands out to those who know Hebrew, uh, which is not me. I, I rely on other people who know Hebrew. Uh, uh, let's, let's start in verse 13. So they ruthlessly, that's the Egyptians, made the people of Israel work as slaves. So what had happened here is, uh, uh, as Dale laid down for us last week, the people of Israel came. There's only 70 people at the time. Uh, there's the sons of Jacob. They had 12 sons and all their wives and kids and livestock and everything. They came to Egypt to escape uh, an incredible famine that was going on in the land. God had to set it up so Joseph would be there so they could be uh, taken care of. They get to Egypt and they stay there for 400 years. We'll get back to that later. 400 years they're there. And as they're there, they, they start to grow in population. Those 70 people, they start to multiply. I mean, they, like rabbits. I mean, they're getting after it. People, babies are being born. I mean, they are growing. And to such an extent that the Egyptians look on at the Israelites and they say, hey, they're growing. There's more and more of them. And if there's a war... 
they can join the enemy and they can defeat us. And so we got to find some way to kind of keep them down. So the first plan they come up with is we're going we're gonna to make them slaves. We're going to make them build our buildings and do our deals as they you know, built these giant cities for them. They made bricks. They, made, uh, they, they worked under hard, ruthless labor under the Egyptians. And part of their idea was that is that not only are we going to harness their energy, but if we're going to work them hard enough, then they can't make as many babies. And if we work them hard enough, then they'll start to die off out of the hard work and we'll keep the population under control. But inexplicably, the more they made them work harder, the more they grew in number. And so then the Pharaoh had an idea. He said, all right, here's what we're going to do. And so he called the two head midwives in. And he said, all right, here's what you're going to do. If you see a baby boy that's born, you're going to kill him. Which is, I mean, that's a pretty strong order from the king, right? But the midwives, it says they feared God. It's the, actually the first time the word God is used in the book of Exodus. And it, we don't even know that it even means they, they, they feared Jehovah just in uh, in uh, ancient literature, it would just mean like they feared uh, the greater power than themselves, even if they didn't know who he was. And so what they did was they said, hey, uh, we're not going to kill these babies. We fear God. And so we don't know if they just lied or if they actually did. I think they probably did. They said, all right, here, probably told the, all the people in Israel, all the Israelites, hey, when you have a baby, don't call us until the end. Because they didn't want to be responsible for killing the babies. And so when Pharaoh came in and he saw like, hey, there's still like boys running around. And he called them in and say, hey, explain yourselves. They said, hey, these Israelite women, they're just strong and hardy women. Like, like the, they're like women like where I grew up. I told the Doxa 101 class this morning. I grew up out in the middle of nowhere. My great-grandmother was a, a sharecropper. She never owned property. Uh, she, uh, she, she, one time there was her little boy uh, they were out in the field. I don't remember what they were doing. They were out in the field, you know, whatever they were doing at the time. And a rattlesnake bit the sun. And at the time, there was this kind of old wives' tale that the way you could stop the, your, your, the, the poison, because they were like, they didn't have cars or anything. It was like horse and buggy to get to town, to get to town. It was a big deal. And so this kind of idea that what you can do is you could suck the poison out of the wound, which is not true because your blood's already circulating around, but that's what they thought. And so she, in, out in the field, sucked the poison out of her son's wound, and she lost all her teeth because of that. But somehow the boy survived. And so she, after that, she always hated snakes. And one time there's a story of her being out. Uh, she, she didn't have a gun to shoot the snake with. And so she grabbed a knee-high bottle. It's like a, a, a glass Coke bottle. And she killed the snake with a knee-high bottle. <laughs> That's the kind of women where I grew up from. And so what the midwives told Pharaoh was, hey, these Israelite women are hardy like the women where out Toddville where Randy grew up, and they don't even have need for a midwife. They just kind of squat, pop the baby out, and they keep on walking, they keep on going. They don't even need us, so we don't even get a chance to kill the boys. And so Pharaoh said, okay. And they kept on growing more and more and said, I'm sorry, I'm done. Here's what we're going to do. He told everybody in the kingdom, you're authorized and ordered to take baby Boy, Israelites, after right after they're born, and throw them into the river, throw them into the Nile, and kill them. We're going to get rid of them that way. But inexplicably, the more that they oppressed them, the more they ruthlessly controlled them, the more they tried to kill them, the more the people grew. 
And then we see that in this for, verse 14, an interesting word is used a couple of times. Uh, we don't see it in our English translation. It says, uh, so that they ruthlessly made the people, verse 13, of Israel to work as slaves, in verse 14, and made their lives bitter with hard service, that word service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all the work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's the other word. In the original language, that word service and that word slave is the same word. And it's an interesting word. That it's, it's an interesting word because they say that it's not easily translatable into English. Uh, you know, there's some, there's some words, some phrases that if we tried to explain to somebody that spoke a different language, they couldn't quite understand what we're saying. It, it, like idioms, like there's a phrase like in the South when we say, bless your heart. Like if you think about, if you're trying to translate that into another language, it would sound weird. Like what do you mean bless their heart? And you would say, no, it doesn't mean that. It means something else, but it really means even something else on top of that. When they say bless their heart, that means like, oh, that person's really stupid or they're ugly or, you know, it's a nice way to say something really bad about somebody. And then you put the bless their heart at the end and it makes it, make it, makes it softer. It's, it's hard or difficult or almost impossible to translate into another language. And this word here is like that. What this word means is it means work, service, or labor performance, effort, or accomplishment, or a task, worship, obligation, ministry. It means to worship, to live for, to be under the control of. It says they, worth, they ruthlessly made them to work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service. They were performing, they had effort, they had accomplishment, they had a, a task before they had worship obligation, they were over them, they, had, they were under the control of the Egyptians. But the interesting thing about that word is, it's the same word later in Exodus when God says, you shall worship me only. See, the book of Exodus opens with the Israelites in bondage but it closes with their worship. Because they weren't free, as when we get to the, the really cool part of the story, they weren't f truly free when, when Pharaoh finally said, all right, get out of here and go. I can cheat, cheat ahead because you guys have seen the movies. They all talked about them. When, when Pharaoh finally said, get out of here and go, and they go and they get away, they weren't truly free yet. Think about it, when you guys, again, you guys have seen the movie that they're out free. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. God has delivered them. Moses goes up on the mountain. God's there. Awesome things are happening. He's gone for 40 days. And like, they're like, man, they, if they, they keep saying over and over again, I wish we could just go back to Egypt. They decide to, to make a calf that they can, out of gold that they can worship right there, even though they just saw a few days before, like the mountains shake and quake and thunder and lightning with God's presence. They saw God open up the see before them. They were still bound with this idea of bondage, of service to, of protection of somebody else. They weren't really free until their worship was turned away from being under bondage from somebody else to serving God. Just like David Foster Wallace said, we have to stop worshiping uh, 
uh, money and power and pleasure and sexual allure, you can't just stop worshiping something until it's delivered from what you're under bondage to under something else, until you, are, you see and you're ravished by the glory and the beauty of God that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. You will be bound to worship whatever it is that you found to be of value, whatever it is that you build your life on, whatever it is that's de- determining the trajectory of your life, you will continually be bound to go in that direction until your worship is arrested away into something else. We all need saving. We all need to be freed. And true freedom is found when we worship, live for, under the control of the one true God. That's why salvation doesn't come on our timeline. And this section, this Genesis chapter 1, and even the section that uh, Justin read for us this morning, verses 8 through 14, years and years and years pass. Generations pass. And things only seem to get worse. Think about it. They were in Egypt for 400 years. Years and years are passing. And they probably were wondering the whole time, like, where is this God that's supposed to be our God? Like, they they tell us a story about how he came to our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. I'm going to give you your own land. I'm going to make you a great people. The stories that we've heard about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Joseph, how he delivered him and brought him here and put him over. Like, where is he now? And they probably were wondering, like, God, if you're, if you're real, why don't you show up? But the conditions only got progressively worse. The name of God, except for that one phrase where it says that those midwives, those two midwives, feared God. The name of God isn't even mentioned in the book of Exodus until the end of chapter 2. After generations and generations and generations have passed. They thought their greatest need was to simply not be slaves anymore. That wasn't their greatest need. Just as you and I think that our greatest need is probably delivered from whatever makes us uncomfortable right now. I don't have a good job. My marriage is in shambles. I've been looking for a mate and I can't find one. I don't have any money in my bank. Uh, I feel fat. I feel ugly. Nobody likes me. I just wish like the opposite of any of those things were true. We think that's what we need. But what we think we need is rarely what we really need. And that's why salvation doesn't come on our timeline. The reason most commentators that I've read agree, the reason that God's name isn't mentioned until really the end of chapter 2 of Exodus after years and years have passed is that God, Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, is wanting us to feel what the Israelites were feeling, a progressively uh, louder and a stronger sense of understanding that we need God to come and save us and to free us. And the core of that, that they needed God. They didn't just need to be freed from the oppression that was upon them in Egypt. They needed to be 
awakens the glory that's found in God. He seems to be absent, but he's actually preparing them this whole time. Everything that Egypt does to try to impress them and control them and wipe them out actually makes them stronger. It makes them larger. It makes them a people who long for freedom. Even the, the last attempt at genocide where, where Pharaoh orders the people to kill the baby boys is what produces Moses. He never would have ended up in the Nile if they weren't, if they weren't commanded to throw the babies into the river. He never would have found, been found by Pharaoh's daughter. He never would have been raised in their household and educated to be a leader. And yet, to be nursed and cared for by his real and true mother and be prepared to be the leader who would deliver God's people. The lesson for us in that is when God appears to be absent, he's working in the background. He was after something bigger and greater. It's understandable that they believed that their greatest need was freedom from the oppression. But don't we know that it's not just physical bondage that binds a man? I was, the, I, I was uh, reading through Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter from Birmingham Jail. Anybody ever read that? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, I was just thinking about this this week. Who was more bound at that time? Martin Luther King, who was stuck in prison unfairly, or the men and women who believed that because of the color of his skin, he was less of a person than they. I'd make the argument they were the ones who were more bound. And he was more free in that Birmingham cell than his captors were when they went home at night. What binds us isn't what physically keeps us back. Neither is that what makes us free. Salvation rarely comes on our timeline because true freedom is found when we worship, live for, and under the control of the one true God. And then salvation isn't always what or why we think. We often think salvation or freedom is to be delivered from uncomfortable circumstances. We think freedom is to be independent moral agents, to be able to choose what and how for myself. But God sees salvation as being freed from empty idols. God sees salvation as you and I finding the who and what we were created for. God was working in the background for all those years, all those generations for the Israelites to see that they truly needed God. That he was the only one who could not only deliver them from oppression, but he was the one they were created for, to love and to worship him. And true freedom and salvation was found in him and only in him. And then whenever they, he freed them, he, when he would free them from the oppression of, of Egypt, and they get out into the wilderness, he orchestrates events in such a way so they would see their insufficiency in themselves. They would see that even though God comes to them and he says, here's my perfect law, like you shall know the gods before me. You guys have heard the Ten Commandments, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife or their, your neighbor's ox or any of those things. Like all the, the laws, don't lie, don't cheat, don't, you know, all those things. That they would see we just can't keep it. We just can't do it on our own. And that would cause them to long for a savior. 
who would come and not only save them from physical bondage and oppression, but would save them from this inner insufficiency that we have. Because we weren't made to worship anything other than the one who is greater than us. God the Father. And what that would point to is that they needed somebody to come and save them. They needed Jesus. When God tells them, this is how you worship, it's built into the way that they worship that, they, that, they, that their sin needs atoning for. That not only do they need God, but there's something, while we were created in his image, there's something broken about us where we want to fight against and war against God and worship anything else other than God. And so he sets up where they make sacrifices to atone for their sin. But each one of those sacrifices is pointing towards the fact that we would need someone who would come and pay the ultimate price for us on our behalf. It was pointing to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a believer, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you consider yourself a Christian. But as you think about it, your trajectory in life is not one of worship of the one true God. You worship at all kinds of other altars. This morning, I would invite you and ask you and implore you to look to the one who came on your behalf and did what you could not do and died a death for you to draw you back to the Father. It's only in seeing the beauty and glory that's found in Jesus Christ and his love and grace to you that is undeserved that your worship can be freed from vain and empty things to worship the one and only true God. And if you are a believer this morning, I would invite you to, as we begin this journey, our journey in, salva- in the book of Exodus, to see salvation, to see uh, us in, in my life personally, we, as we see the Israelites go from bondage to the promised land, as we see ourselves le- go from bondage to deliverance, to God's presence with us, his covenant towards us, and then the promise one day re- being reunited with him, I encourage you and implore you, and all of us together, to think about the empty and vain idols that we are constantly tempted, like the Israelites were, to chase after. And to continually see, as we see this morning, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. To see the glory and beauty, to be ravished by the glory and beauty that's found in Jesus Christ. And therefore to be freed from the empty and vain and worthless idols. Because on our journey, we'll find that true freedom is found when we worship, live for, and under the control of the one true God. X is the story of bondage to freedom, but maybe not the way that we thought it was. Let's pray. Father, if we were to face this morning the trajectory of our lives, it may be a question that we don't really want to ask because we have to face our 
insufficiencies. We have to ba- face uh, um, our brokenness. We have to face the direction that we are going. How the decisions and the way that we think about ourselves and our lives and what we're going to do and not do. Um, it's leading us in a way that ends in emptiness. Father, I thank you that you've orchestrated our lives in such a way just for us to sense our own emptiness and our own need, just as the way the Israelites sense their emptiness and their insufficiency to save themselves and cause them to look for a Savior. God, I pray you would cause us to look for a Savior. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, Father, I ask that we would freshly be ravished by the beauty, the glory, the love, the grace that is found in Jesus towards us. And that that beauty, that glory, that amazingness would cause all the other things that we seem to chase to fade away. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.